When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast, a Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair. George Ellick with me, Ali Maxwell, talking all things EFL, and I really do mean all things this week, possibly as much as any before. We have loads of things to talk about on-field, off-pitch matters as well. The NTT20.com transfer window coverage continues apace. Last week, we had a couple of the busiest days so far, and it's only going to get busier. Thankfully, we've got an amazing team working with George and I, uh, writing up every single EFL done deal and sent to you every single morning in a bulletin to your email inbox, ntt20.com to sign up. Get involved with done deals daily. We've got some big plans for the next few weeks. How are you, George? I'm actually good. Because normally I just answer that question blasely. Mm. But um, having been ill for the majority of 2024 and then the last few months of 2023 intermittently and all of last week mm. and yesterday, yeah, feeling all right. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. You're on the way up. Um, bit of fun over the weekend. We released the first in hopefully quite a few NTT20 chats in 2024. We kicked off with Bailey Cadamartry and Daryl Clark. Yes. Bailey, obviously one of the big stories to come out of Danny Rule's managerial centre Sheffield Wednesday. Hopefully there isn't such thing as the NTT20 curse because I didn't know he came off at half time on, on Saturday. And again, we'll talk about. But yeah, spoke really well about his career so far. And then Daryl Clark, the most overachieving manager, I would say, in world football. <laughs> Find me someone who's taken over a team performing as badly as Cheltenham were when he took over who where the turnaround of performance level has been as high mm-hmm. as Daryl Clark. F- find me. The burden of proof is on you. Who would be your dream guest for an NTT20 chat in the coming months? I mean, I feel a bit dirty saying it because I think it's important not to get, especially when we cover the EFL, not to get blinded by glitz and glamour. Um, but Steve Evans, no. But um, <laughs> I think if we could get Ryan Reynolds on the pod, that'd be quite cool. Ideally on a Zoom call, maybe actually just go out there. Ideally on a Zoom call, not in person. The idea of us actually getting in person is so unlikely that it feels like, I just don't want it to be like a phone call, you know? I should, but we could go go to LA, I guess. If the offer was there, I think, we, I think we'd find some pennies down the back of the, yeah. the sofa. Uh, for me, I think it's probably Mike Williamson. Will I Amson? Yeah, Will I Amson, more celebrity. That's what we'll be working on over the next few months so that we can bring you... A bit more interview content on the pod. Hope you enjoyed that one with Bailey Academartry and Daryl Clark. We're actually going to start in League One. And we're going to start with what happened at the Select Car Leasing Stadium on Saturday. Reading's game against Port Vale. Match abandoned because in the 16th minute, a number of Reading fans ran onto the pitch and occupied uh, the centre circle and then moved uh, in a group towards the dugouts, continuing to make their voice heard making their voice heard in its most extreme form so far. 
and George just reaching a new level of desperation in this horrific saga. Yeah, I mean, it's important, I think, that we cover this properly. And there'll be a lot of people listening who will know about the um, game being abandoned uh, at Reading, but won't necessarily know the, the details. And there's a very good Reading podcast and, and website, the Tarhurst End, and they have done a very good explainer for people like that. So I would recommend checking it out. We'll tweet it uh, later on from our account. But there, you know, to sum it up effectively under the heading, why are fans protesting against him? Uh, they outline a few of the reasons. Uh, repeated failure to pay players wages in full and on time in October 22, November 22, April 23. Uh, this could have happened at other times in 23-24 season, but the sponsors select car leasing owned by Reading fans have twice stepped in with a loan to cover the payroll. Uh, 16 points deducted, November 21. April 23, August 23 and September 23 as well. A repeated failure to pay HMRC in full and on time, leading to these numerous transfer embargoes. Non-playing staff not being paid properly in November 23. And then uh, non-playing staff being sent redundancy letters just before Christmas uh, last year as well. Uh, key coaching personnel, such as Andrew Sparks, who's assistant manager, and Eddie Nidvaisky, uh, who was director of player development, being made redundant uh, this month. Key players being lined up for sale. You know, we're seeing Tom Holmes and Nelson Abbey being rumoured to be signing for Luton in, in the next couple of days. And uh, this is without the approval of Ruben Sellers and or head of football operations, Mark Bowen. Uh, the Athletic did a piece uh, a week or so ago outlining loads of cost-cutting areas at the moment. Uh, such as the removal of catering for players at the training ground, uh, hotel stays being scrapped, no heating for office staff. I mean, the list actually goes on. There's an anything else, um, which I think suggests that it's not quite as, the, the issues aren't quite as stark as those above, but things like not being able to pay a fee since 2020, relegation, no communication, the women's team being relegated and then downgraded to part-time. Um, and the fact that two other clubs that Dai Yong has been involved in, uh, one in Belgium, one in China, no longer exist. Like this is, serious this isn't a group of fans getting frustrated and angry about lack of investment or about not being happy about the manager this is a case of chronic mismanagement from the part of of Reading's owner who realistically should never have been allowed to buy a football club probably with his history and it's not just Reading fans now like I always say this and I, this comes from someone who as much as I like to pretend it's not the case you know Oxford the club I support in Reading have a rivalry and yet there's absolutely nothing that comes into this about this it's all about ensuring that the football club that a big group of people support they don't have an existential issue which at the moment they really have but it doesn't get out of control and could risk the long-term ex- existence of Reading. Sell Before We Die are the largest protest group within this the work that they've done has been fantastic in a statement on Saturday, they called owner Dai Yong duplicitous and destructive. Uh, one Reading fan that I know said that there's so much anger in the fan base that even the restrained, moderate folk have been broken beyond imaginable limits. There are people on the pitch. I'd never have predicted things are so dire at the club. We genuinely believe we're in danger of not having a club to support. And that really is why it should be clear to everyone listening quite how serious this is that the difficulty, George, now that we've given an overview of why it is such a desperate situation, the thoughts naturally turn to what might happen next, what are the, the next scenarios. And this conversation is difficult because the structure of the EFL is not necessarily something that all fans understand. What they do or don't have the remit to do when it comes to its member clubs There's so many different aspects to this conversation. One of them is how does an owner like this get passed through the owners and directors test in the first place? You referred to 
you know, with his background, well, to be specific, he has owned two other football clubs, one in China, one in Belgium, neither of which exist anymore. They were both folded after Dai Yong's ownership of those clubs. This part of the conversation is difficult and I think confuses a lot of people, frustrates a lot of people, and I kind of count myself within that. Kieran Maguire is someone that is often seen as the kind of gospel, the guy to ask difficult questions. He seems to understand everything that needs to be known about, about governance and club structures and uh, what the EFL can and can't do. But he was asked on Twitter, within the current legal structure, is there anything that EFL can do? And he replied to say, not much. And if they do get rid of him, who is going to fund the wage bill? So it is pretty desperate at this moment in time. The Tilehurst end piece that you mentioned has a Q&A aspect of it, which says, Reading going into administration isn't a prospect anyone wants in an ideal world, but it may be the best way forward. It would mean short-term pain and a 12-point deduction, which would almost certainly mean relegation, but it would bring to an end the Dai Yong era and allow Reading to rebuild in League Two. Uh, it goes on to say, the EFL have shown promising signs. In November, they requested to an independent disciplinary commission that Dai Yong should be disqualified from all football activity, including ownership and control, for a period of not less than 12 months, which would effectively force a sale. However, they have no power to enact this themselves, and the independent disciplinary commission turned down the request for disqualification. They came to this decision on the basis that it would be disproportionate for the specific case in front of them at the time, which was numerous cases of failure to pay wages in full and on time. I say all this to say, George, that it's really unclear exactly what will happen over the next few months. And, and that doesn't help this feeling of helplessness. No, it doesn't. And it, and it kind of reminds me, uh, we, we spoke to Action for Albion, um, or representative from Action for Albion on the pod a couple of weeks ago, and it was a similar story where, you know, when you're a football club and you're getting to a stage where administration is basically the best possible scenario, then you know that things are pretty bleak because that is when you basically stop caring about performances on the pitch, you stop caring about results on the pitch because you're accepting a, a sanction that's probably going to cause relegation, but it means you're in survival mode basically, and that's where we've got to with Reading, and it, and it is really concerning as well that you know it's important to mention we can't necessarily validate the, the claims or the all the stuff in the Tarhurst end uh, piece but there you know it's said there that supposedly Dai Yong doesn't have any serious or genuine desire to sell the club and if that's the case despite you know his public claims otherwise then it's very hard to see a way out of this for Reading that would, would go the way that we're hopefully seeing at West Bromwich Albion who currently have according to the Athletic and a couple of other sources um, last week have three uh, consortiums currently kind of battling it out for the club. If there isn't a willing seller, then Reading can't find themselves in that position, which would lead to a resolution of this issue without the need for administration and secure the, the, the immediate future of the club. Massive credit to Port Vale fans um, for the way that they supported it. Like if I was a an away fan going to a game, um, I'd like to think I'd be able to have solidarity with them. I think realistically, I probably would feel quite frustrated that my day has gone the way it has. So, you know, massive respect to them for, for dealing with it the way that they did and understanding the bigger picture. So nice bit of that solidarity that's carried on since Saturday is Reading fans have been showing their gratitude to the Vale fans by donating to a crowdfunder uh, that or a fundraiser to raise money for a statue of John Rudge, who is... Port Vale royalty, Port Vale legend, a lot of Reading fans chipping in to show their gratitude for the support that, that Vale fans showed them on, on Saturday. 
one of the big taglines that is part of the Reading ownership discussion, George, but is really about more than just Reading FC, is English football has an ownership problem. This is a, a there was a big banner on the pitch with that statement, uh, and it's something that has been part of various conversations around English football for a long time now. And although I think we both believe that those running, in particular the EFL, and hopefully those that will be able to run or help run English football as part of the independent regulator, do broadly have the, the right ideas of how to go about trying to fix the massive issue that we have. But that's no good really right now for Reading. And Reading aren't the only club across the 72 clubs that we talk about every Monday who are in a position where there are red flags that could easily grow into worse situations. The difficulty is, is that in order to have a group of owners of football clubs in England that is completely free from the sorts of individuals that ruin football clubs, that run them into the ground, that don't run them with the club's or the fans' best interests at heart, we need a group of new owners in the English game. But because football clubs in England are such horrendous businesses because they lose consistently so much money and that falls on the owner to pay there isn't the supply seemingly to match the demand in the last few years almost every club that has desperately needed to be sold when we learn about those who are showing interest in buying them again this is a subjective thing but you look at the people and you think are you really doing this for the right reasons? Are you doing this for benevolent reasons? Or are you just trying to get a distressed asset? And are you potentially in the long term going to be, again, treating the club without due care and attention? That's where it's really difficult. I think when you, if you look back, not even that far, five, ten years ago, the, the cost of, of running a football club, even at kind of League One, League Two level, was not quite as... Um, the checks you're writing basically at the end of each year probably weren't quite as big. I think there just may not be that many people or may, maybe the, there is a wealth issue when it comes to how many, what percentage of the population can actually do that. And when you consider the rise of the, you know, the amount of American ownership in, in, the, in the EFL at the moment, partly I think because they're obsessed with the whole promotion relegation picture. And I, I, I kind of hope when we, when we sit and we look through the, the, the clubs at the moment, there is always going to be a lag. It does feel like the EFL are trying, as you say, to 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 change. I think the change of governance in the EFL has probably triggered a change of who is necessarily able to buy clubs now. And so hopefully in time it's going to get better. But as we say, there are certainly at least three clubs in the EFL right now where the fan base is not particularly happy with, it, with, their own, with the owners. And we need to learn from each one of those because, yeah, we can't at the moment continue this way. Unfortunately, we are in a situation whereby one person, if they want to show a stubbornness, if they want to show a single-mindedness, if they want to show a lack of care, they can run a club completely into the ground. And we desperately, desperately need for that to not happen. So please do uh, keep Reading in your thoughts, in your minds. Please make sure you're not ignoring this issue. It's very, very important and the way that English football is right now, I can say with complete confidence that whatever happens to Reading in the short, medium, long term, there'll be another situation like this at some point. We will be talking about it at some point. We have to all try and work together to make sure that 
the people who appear to have actual cogent ideas about how to better run English football so that community assets, so that these clubs, which are for many people, one of the most important things in their lives, aren't ceasing to exist because of the whims and actions of, of one person. Time to talk football, George, and championship headline, Coventry 3, Leicester 1. I reckon uh, this was a bit of fun on Saturday lunchtime. Quite a quiet start to the game. Absolutely burst into life towards the end of the first half. Two massive refereeing decisions. One, a penalty given for a foul by Bobby Thomas on Keenan Dewsbury Hall. Penalty scored by Keenan Dewsbury Hall. Lot of discussion about that penalty decision. And then, a minute or two later, Abdul Fatawu, full of adrenaline, flew in on Jake Bidwell, straight red card. In the space of three minutes, the game was flipped on its head one way and then basically back the other way as well because that then gave Coventry the ascendancy. Uh, they scored three goals in the last 15 minutes of the game, two from Callum O'Hare, one from Milan Van Evick. Onto those in a second. Uh, what did you make of the two decisions? It's hard with the penalty because it's a very rare occasion where you're going to have basically the... The, the defending team's fans, and it's a, a, a fair argument saying, well, he got the ball, it's not a penalty. And then you're going to have the away team fans and other people watching us saying it should be a red card. Yeah. And I think both lines of argument are kind of fair, where like if you do give the penalty, I kind of think Thomas has to go because, yes, he gets the ball first, but the nature of the challenge and the follow-through is, I think, unquestionably dangerous. And... It's the sort of one that Romero got sent off yeah. in the Spurs-Chelsea game for early in the season. It, and it kind of goes into the excessive force area. Like I'm fine with that being a penalty. I can understand why there'll be people incredulous that it was given because he quite clearly does get the ball. But And, you know, there comes a, a time sometimes where even if you do win the ball first, your actions post that event can still yield it to be dangerous. So, yeah, I kind of think it's either a, a penalty... Well, I guess because of double jeopardy, can it be a red card as well? Who knows these days? I certainly don't. So yeah, I'm, I don't have an issue with the decision itself. But what it definitely did is it brought some spice into the game. Mm. And yes, it was only a couple of minutes later that Fatou was sent off. But that was like, it felt like kind of the fifth tackle in that really short space of time where they just, each one, they flew in harder and harder. And Fatou's challenge is one of those where it's not your regular red card where he's come in late and high and he's clattered into the shins. It was the kind of tackle where if he times it and he gets it right, if he's there half a second earlier, everyone claps and it's like, well done, yeah, he's shown himself here. But because he's late, undoubtedly there is excessive force there and it was a, a nasty challenge. And I think definitely. Well, sometimes you, these days you do see players get the ball at that speed and still have a free kick given against them. Yeah, for excessive I, I, do, force. I do think. But all I'm saying is it's not one where yeah. the leg is high, it's hit the shin, and you're mm -hmm. like, well, he could have broken his leg there. This is more. There was absolutely no need whatsoever for Fatou to go in like that. If you're taking the ball, you're probably like, okay, fair play. That's a, a crunching challenge, but because he's late and he misses it. And also as many um, banter Twitter accounts have, uh, have have posted in the last couple of days, he obviously chose not to go to AFCON, now has a red card, a three-game suspension, and misses basically the day he comes back from his suspension is the day before AFCON finishes. I think the following few sentences pretty much show why it was the right decision on both fronts. Uh, from the laws of the game, a direct free kick is awarded if a player commits any of the following offences against an opponent in a manner considered by the referee to be careless, reckless, or using excessive force. Careless, 
is when a player shows a lack of attention or consideration when making a challenge or acts without precaution. No yellow card is needed. Reckless is when a player acts with disregard to the danger to or consequences for an opponent and must be cautioned. I think that's what got Bobby Thomas in trouble. And the third one, using excessive force, is when a player exceeds the necessary use of force and endangers the safety of an opponent and must be sent off. And I think that's what done for Abdul Fatawu. A good bit of English from me there. So, uh, interesting uh, decisions, had a big impact on the game. Let's talk about the actual goals, though, that came at the end of this game. Ooh, yeah, I actually felt Leicester were doing quite well with 10 men. Yeah. For the first half hour of the second half, covering the ascendancy, the atmosphere was incredible. You knew they were going to go for it, and they had the most of the ball, and they were knocking at the door, but they couldn't break it down. It was always going to take a good strike through bodies. That's what we got, first from Callum O'Hare, and then Van Eviks, sort of bouncing volley after he'd controlled a uh, clearance from a corner with one of the softest, sweetest first touches of the week. And then actually kind of a bobbly finish into the far corner. O'Hare made it 3-1 in injury time, George. Incredible afternoon at the CBS. Yeah, it kind of feels like Callum O'Hare has come back from injury. And as I alluded to, you know, he often, especially with, with ACL injuries and, and, and the like, when you're a dynamic player like he is... Um, sometimes players come back and they're not quite the same as they were and it's always very sad to see with O'Hare it doesn't look like it's the case at all he's come back off a really long layout and he's a better player I would say um, than he looked like he was before interesting I tweeted about it and, and a couple of Cov fans replied basically saying that it's almost slowed him down to the extent that he's better for it like he's almost not trying to do everything at a million miles per hour he's taking his time he's being a bit more calculated and therefore it's coming off I don't know if that's a case where like you take you take a result and you try and apply some logic to it possibly he learned composure but on the either, treatment table well more, more just that he can't physically do things as fast as he was before so therefore it's kind of getting more time probably nonsense um, a really nice finish for the first goal and as sumptuous a close range volley as you're ever going to see for, for the second with his left foot uh, with the Van, Van Evert goal before but it kind of if you were to cast the championship right now as a as a drama, I'd kind of have, have O'Hare as the protagonist. Like it feels to me like he is basically the boy at the moment taking a club in Coventry whose arrival into their team has yielded um this incredible turnaround of form that's put them on the on the tails of the playoffs and, and surely one of the most likely teams to break into the top six, who um scored uh you know, scored here and, and did a celebration in front of the in front of the fans. Scored against Birmingham, having been a, a Villa player, and spoke afterwards about his granddad being a being a Blues being a Blues fan. Like it does feel everything he's doing at the moment is box office, and this is this is kind of the season of Callum O'Hare. And given that his contract's out at the end of the season, and it feels unlikely that he's going to sign that contract that's on the table and has been for a couple of months from Coventry. I'm pretty sure unless he gets relegated from wherever he goes to the Premier League this is the last we're going to see of him he's my favourite player in the league that was made concrete by what happened on Saturday firstly it's because he plays in my f personal favourite position the position that you know in my dreams of being a really good footballer that's where I think that I would do best uh, and my favourite profile of player within that because he's not just a luxury player he is a dribbler he is creative. He does see opportunities to combine with teammates and play one-twos. He can carry the ball past his opposition 1v1, but he's also unbelievably hardworking in the press. He harries the opposition. He is, most importantly for me, competitive as hell um, and absolutely loves it, as we saw. Loves scoring, loves winning. Uh, he is. The only mark against him is that he's doing that modern footballer fad 
of shouting vamos a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is a shame, but I think maybe I'm just getting a bit old. Um, Van Evick as well, we should mention, because he locked down Steffi Mavadidi. He's one of the best players in the championship. Leicester's left winger uh, and scored the goal as well. I think his partnership with Sakamoto off the right can get better and better. I don't see this necessarily being Kov's uh, ceiling. I think they can keep going um, as seen by my prediction of them to reach the playoffs uh, in last week's mid-season predictions. Sakamoto did rinse James Justin in the first half with a really nice bit of skill, which made me yelp. Um, beneath Leicester, who lost, and above Coventry, who won, the teams in second, third, fourth, and fifth all won as well. Ipswich beat Sunderland 2-1. You're saying it's back on? You're, say, you're saying it's wide open? I'm asking you to step in. <laughs> uh, Ipswich 2, Sunderland 1. George Ipswich were five winless before this, so pretty significant just to get the three points. What did you make of it? Well, yeah, I would say it was significant to get the three points, but I think the manner of the win was probably the most significant. I mean, obviously going 1-0 down at home, a sumptuous Jack Clark strike. You know, for I always say that he scores the same goal over and over again. This was different, picking the ball up on the outside of the box and leathering it into the top left-hand corner, uh, the bouncing ball with his right foot. Um, but up to then, Sunderland hadn't offered much and what was impressive for me was the way that Ipswich I think a key part not last season where they were kind of incapable of doing this but this season at home Ipswich have been so good at dealing with blows and coming back and picking up points in games where they go behind and this was a really good example of that where they went 1-0 down given they hadn't been in the great best run of form going into this game it would have been very easy for them especially with Sunderland, one of the teams they've got to make sure they're kind of kept clear of, having drawn three games in a row, winless and five in the league. Um, for them to put in the kind of attacking display they put in after this was really impressive. Uh, for Caden Jackson to score the opening goal, kind of I, I was trying to tell from the replays if Connor Chaplin had any intention to, to kind of divert Lewis Travis's ball into his path. I don't think so. But either way, given that they've lost Hurst, given at the moment we're seeing them linked to Sam Gallagher, which I think even though he's a player that I, I don't, necessarily hate I think it sh it shows how much Ipswich feel like they need a physical striker to hold the ball up and bring other, bring others into play Jackson by no means by design uh, a player that they anticipated would be leading the line as kind of first choice at any point in the season that's where they are right now with a really nicely taken goal and then one of my favourite I'd say ever corner goals where it's just free kick wasn't it yeah sorry but you know what I mean one of my favourite ever wide free kick or, or corner goals where yeah. it's just it's such a good ball from Leif Davis that it manages to find the five foot eight diminutive player on his own in the middle of the box. Yeah. And then it's one of the best like planted firm headers. Can it be a firm plant? I think it can be. Yeah. Um, from Connor Chaplin, who obviously goes wild uh, in front of the, the, the home fans at, at Portman Road. Just a really significant means of victory. I think it's the kind of result that sets them back on track um, after back-to-back nil-nil draws where they didn't look at their best going forward. And especially because they go to Leicester on Monday night, uh, a week today, in what is just going to be a huge game, um, especially because you'd probably anticipate that Leeds and Southampton, having already played uh, Leeds playing at home to Preston and Southampton um, have got an away trip to Swansea. Uh, you'd anticipate that you know they'll both be expecting to win those games. And so therefore, if somehow Ipswich can go to Leicester and this is the Leicester side who at the moment you know, they've lost some players to AFCON they've lost some players to injury they've now of course lost Fatou to suspension like that they're, they're not at their you know they're, they're not at their fullest you know they're, they're down they've lost a few players if they can go there and win then suddenly it will feel like the race for top spot 
isn't done. Um, so yeah, a big one for Ipswich, especially with the, with the added pressure of playing after not only Leicester uh, won their game, but also having seen uh, Leeds, so having Leicester lost their game, but having seen Leeds and, and Sampson both win theirs comfortably. Not a great few weeks for Sunderland. Uh, they've got home games against Hull and Stoke to come, and then they're away at Borough. So difficult fixtures. And as I alluded to last week, I think it's quite important for the general temperature of that football club that they pick up a couple of wins. There were some good bits, some good aspects here, some stuff that isn't looking and feeling great at the moment, but 2-1 defeat away at Ipswich isn't necessarily the one uh, to lose your marbles over, I don't think, albeit frustrating to throw away a lead. Uh, then Southampton and Leeds both winning comfortably. Southampton by four goals to nil at home to Sheffield Wednesday. That means it's 20 games unbeaten, uh, which is uh, equaling their longest ever unbeaten run since joining the Football League, I think 103 years ago. Uh, che Adams set them on their way, uh, an ex-Sheffield United player scoring against Wednesday, and you have to say it was an error from Bambo Diaby, who botched his, his clearance of a cross from the right. Uh, Adams finished it, and you have to be so on it against this Southampton team, particularly once they're into your final third. I think there is a way that you can frustrate them if you are all completely on it in terms of shape, in terms of the, the gaps and spaces between defenders, in terms of the way that you react to runners and to passes. But also, of course, you can't allow for any bad pieces of control or missed clearances. Uh, and that made it 1-0. After that, it was pretty straightforward. Southampton scoring some lovely goals, just a ton of good passing and movement, loads of cutbacks being finished well. Uh, and Adam, the atomic Ant Armstrong, has become the first player in the EFL to notch a double-double. Got two assists and a goal here. Uh, really impressive numbers from Armstrong, who uh, just had a little tweak of, of the role, didn't he? About a, a month, maybe six weeks into the season. Less of an out-and-out -out nine and, and more into this kind of right-sided forward role. It seems to have really, really worked for him, both in terms of being more involved with play, getting into better situations for him, uh, not just in goal-scoring terms, but in, in other ways of impacting the game. Um, credit to Russell Martin for those tweaks. Uh, his team are in pretty good shape. Uh, that was Danny Royal in the Wednesday dugout, who, of course, was Southampton assistant manager uh, for about nine months back in 2018-19 under Ralph Hassenhüttl before he was headhunted by Bayern München. Uh, and Leeds beat Cardiff 3-0. Patrick Bamford making it three goals in three games in 2024, which is a real bit of fun. Uh, Rutter scoring as well. He's now playing in the Joel Perot role, with Bamford playing in the Jorginho Rutter role. And the fact is that Rutter is just such an amazing all-rounder and so, so good at this level, particularly with what he does with his physicality, with his stamina, with his speed, with his skill. Um, he's still able to do basically everything he was doing in the number nine role. Um, but now with Perot on the bench, Bamford is is making the most of his opportunity. Also got Ethan Ampadu playing at centre-back at the moment with Strauch out injured. And Ampadu, you know, they, they haven't lost anything there, which speaks to both Ampadu's versatility and quality and also the other centre midfielders that they have in the squad. And the other notable for me, old Junior Firpo. First start of the season at left-back. It's been a strange season fullback-wise for Leeds. They started at right-back with Luke Ayling who started, I think, the first seven games and then was completely bombed out and is now on loan at Middlesbrough. Uh, and now Archie Gray, the young centre midfielder, has been playing there. Uh, at left-back, they really have been quite mixed. Uh, Sam Byram's played quite a lot and done all right. Firpo's a bit like what Ruto was, I think, at the start of the season, where not very highly thought of by Leeds fans, has, you know, one of many main characters in what was a really poor season or two at Premier League level. But... I can easily predict a big reclamation job for Furpo. Like, 
I don't know exactly how good or bad Firpo is, but I think there's probably a chance he's quite good at championship level. And playing in a really good attacking team, I feel like there's a good chance he makes the left-back spot his own and actually adds quite a lot to them going forward. He's a one very nice run, didn't he, was for the first goal. Um, but in the same way, I mean, I'm not saying he's my favourite, and I'm not talking about Firpo here, but where you were talking about O'Hare being your favourite player in the league, I think Jorginho Rute is not far off being mine. And to see him score a goal, as he did with the third strike, just a really nicely taken goal, which we know that his, I'm going to say only issue is his finishing in terms of the kind of player he is. I can't think of many similar players to Ruta. Someone who is, I mean, first he's only 21 years old, but his dribbling and creative ability as a striker, his unbelievable energy off the ball and willingness to kind of get stuck in. Like I think he's basically, if he can the one part of his game that improves in the next two or three years. And, I'm, and I know he's a £30 million pound player, so I'm not by any stretch suggesting that this is a surprise, but he's kind of the one where if he can add consistent goals to his game, and, you know, his XG um, per 90 is pretty good. It's like, I think, 0.3. So there's no reason why he can't be pretty prolific. He's, he's kind of one of the most complete attacking players, possibly, I think we've seen come through the, the EFL. And seeing him score those kind of goals makes me wonder uh, where he could go. Yeah, West Brom beat Blackburn... 4-1. Tom Fellows, 20-year-old wide player, was on loan at Crawley last season. I remember him catching my eye in a Crawley-Gillingham game that I went to. Uh, he scored his first league goal for West Brom. Having come through the academy, uh, he scored a very nice goal in the FA Cup last weekend. So making the most of his opportunities and the fact that he plays off the right as well, albeit a left-footer, uh, unlike Jed, who's the right-footed right-winger, it has allowed uh, our friend Jed Lee to have a bit of a rest. I think he's had plenty of minutes this season and he was able to put his feet up for the most part on Saturday and watch Tom Fellows do the business. Now, uh, listeners of the pod for a long time know that Jed is uh, one of the great friends of the pod and was a star of our live show as well. And I did message him about Tom Fellows and asked him a couple of weeks ago, before both goals, in fact, when I saw that he was involved in squads and I wondered whether he might be loaned out or get an opportunity. And I'm sure he won't mind me sharing the fact that his review was, he's class. <laughs> Both feet dribbler, rapid. He's definitely got the talent and he's got a mad turn. It's quite fun that in the last week or so, we've started to see that uh, in a baggy shirt. Uh, Thomas Asante with a couple of nice finishes. A couple of rumours of interest for Thomas Asante from Premier League clubs. It's not a huge surprise just based on his profile. You look at the, the profile of number nines in the in the Premier League and Thomas Asante, although he's relatively short, he does have the physique that is attractive to a, uh, a lot of clubs at the top level. I, I like Thomas Asante, but I personally think a jump to the Prem now would possibly be a bit too yeah, early. Yeah, I agree. It's not that long he's been playing through the middle. And yeah, I, I think he'd probably, well, as a player, his development, I think would benefit from another six months at least playing as a nine at championship level. Uh, Adam Reach, still Too starting far. games in the championship in the year of our Lord 2024 yeah. on the left wing. 4-1 win. Corberan is a genius, isn't he? Um, <laughs> but Blackburn have lost seven of nine. Uh, somewhat concerning Troubling. for them. Hull 1, Norwich 2. Yeah. You are the reason that I breathe. You are the reason that I still believe. <laughs> you are my destiny, John Rowe. I kind of think with, with Rowe, his explosive start to the season and therefore the knowledge that that was never going to continue has maybe led to him being a bit of a blind spot um not to Norwich fans but to, to neutral onlookers where his you know because he, he wasn't a first team regular before this season I think someone who can score the kind of goal that he scored on on um Friday night and we've seen him score a lot of very good very different goals this season 
it's easy to forget that this is his first campaign where he's doing this. And I think he's a, a massive talent and someone who's a, a, a bright spark and a rare bright spark at the moment. In a Norwich team who are one of the most perplexing to kind of work out at the moment because they're 11th in the in the league table at the moment. They're two points behind Coventry who currently occupy sixth. So they are a couple of good results away from being in the top six, basically. They have won, uh, they've beaten um, Hull last time out 2-1 away from home. But despite that, you still have fans, even after this game, being like, yeah, I mean, we won, but it's that classic, we won, but at what cost? It's like we're we're going away to Hull and we're, we're dropping in and playing on a low block and we're hoping that the individual talents of Rowe or when they throw nine men forward, Fastnack can kind of thigh it in at the back post off a deflection. Um, That's the least amount of vigour that Fastnacht's name well, has ever been said on this I'm, I'm embodying Norwich fans at the moment who are just, <laughs> even in wins away from home, they can't really get excited. And I don't know if part of that is because uh, with Wagner, it's gone and therefore it doesn't really matter what happens. Like the, the, the fans have turned and they're, and they're kind of going to be unwilling to accept anything else or because genuinely they are just a club who are not happy watching what they see as a fairly turgid um game plan and I can kind of understand it when you've got Gabriel Sara and Marcelino Nunez playing as your central midfield too and yet you're basically just not giving them the ball in advanced positions ever then it does feel like a bit of a waste of um, of resource so frustrating for them Hull's form is is a worry um, Fabio Carvalho came in and looked pretty lively um, looked a little bit rusty in front of goal but, but generally kind of knit stuff together fairly well the injury to Connolly early on in the game is a blow, given that they are short of numbers uh, at the moment anyway. Um, and Scott Twine looks set to be heading out to, to Bristol City with his loan at Cajal being cut short, which again is a bit of a blow when you consider the, the bodies at the moment and who they're missing. Uh, Philogene and, and Delap obviously not playing on, on Friday night. So a bit of trouble for Hull at the moment. Um, and maybe, you know, in, in Wagner's defence, we are seeing a few games at Hull where teams have kind of worked out they want to dominate the ball um, but if you basically let them have it in the middle third, third rather than the, the advanced third then you quite quickly nullify a lot of their threat because generally their players um, their attacking players are best in transition and if you f- prevent them from attacking in that manner then it's going to be hard for them to break you down Hull have lost six of their last nine in the championship great hit by Tyler Morton though I should say lovely hit from Tyler Morton a Borough beat Millwall 3-1 at the Den impressive in isolation, even more impressive when you remember that they played Aston Villa in the FA Cup and the previous Saturday. Then they played Chelsea in the Carabao Cup in midweek and they beat Chelsea and they took Villa all the way before conceding late on. So to go to the Den, to look understandably a little bit leggy in the first half and to see Millwall put on quite a lot of pressure, uh, get in front through Joe Bryan and have a couple of other uh, half chances, a lot of them falling to Duncan Watmore. You could... If you were a Borough fan in that away end, you would actually probably be about as sympathetic as you'll ever be if your team lost that game from that position. Uh, but instead, a pleasant surprise. Three goals from one down to 3-1. Uh, Engel tapping in a lovely team move, which started right at the back with Glover, making a good pass, uh, the goalkeeper that is, to kick things off. Isaiah Jones uh, ran in behind, uh, capitalised on a mistake by Brian to finish for 2-1. And then Marcus Force with a nice goal again on the break at the end, showing his finishing ability with a powerful low strike into the corner. And we also saw debuts for Finazaz and Luke Ayling. So a really, really good week for Borough on and off the pitch. I think a lot of positivity. Uh, just it's not been the easiest season in terms of results, has it, for Borough? But there must be a huge sense in the fan base that 
you know, having been in the championship for a long time, they know a good championship team when they see one. And their team are a very good team. And obviously the results haven't necessarily reflected that. Uh, but there they are in 10th now, one point off the playoffs, an absolutely massive part of that conversation. Um, Rotherham nil, Stoke won. Should everyone involved in this game be arrested? For I don't want to talk about it. Crimes against... I don't want to talk about it. Lewis Baker scored an amazing free kick. Really nice goal. Stoke won one nil. Rotherham didn't have a shot on target for, I think, the third time in five games, according to El Arbitro Hugh Davis. And that's because we're not including the cross that Kern Bramble scored against Middlesbrough, which was, in statistical terms, their only shot on target in that game. But everyone knows, wasn't a shot. Uh, they need to sort that out. QPR won Watford two. Bit of a laugh watching this, wasn't it? Just Jake Livermore scoring two from outside the box and looking entirely confused about it. <laughs> yeah, I liked both strikes. I would say. I mean, the first one... Different techniques. Well, you know how sometimes you see a player like use the defender's body to kind of curl it around them? For Livermore's first, I felt like there were like five bodies in the, in the exact perfect yeah. arc, which meant that he was able to curl it around all of them. Um, and the it's second, almost like a visual aid for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like this is... It's um, like those grooves where if you put it across the groove, it just kind of follows it around. Lovely. Like it's uh, Yeah, so that was good. And then the second one was one of those strikes where it kind of feels like the ball hits the back of the net as soon as he's kicked it, which is always quite fun as well. So I thought this was a weird game, personally. It was quite fun. Like, it was very scrappy. Um, there was a lot going on in the middle third without a great deal going on in the, <laughs> in the final thirds. Um, Sinclair Armstrong looked really lively, as he always does. He also looked really raw, as he often does um, when he gets the ball into feet. In advanced areas, um, he... Took a very heavy touch with probably the best opportunity of the game just before Livermore's first goal, which would have put QPR 1 0 up. Uh, I thought Watford were generally quite poor. I think they, you know, with Aspria and with uh, Martins, they're generally a team who I think spring better playing against teams who are happy to press. But I thought both teams basically had approached this one in a very similar way, where they were probably happier out of possession than in possession and when they did get the ball they kind of advanced very slowly and it made, made for not much in terms of, of goal mouth action uh, Lyndon Knight's scoring the goal to get QPR back into it but they couldn't find an equaliser not much between the two teams I didn't think there was too much to worry about from a, from a QPR perspective apart from just a very poor run of form at the moment um, and Ilias Chair not looking like his usual creative self just a game that sums up the beauty and randomness of football thank you even game Quite a lot going on. Not really sure how it's going to finish. Jake Livermore scores two from outside the box. <laughs> and then gets taken off. And yeah, Charlie Eccleshare, uh, athletic Spurs writer and football cliches legend, tweeted saying, the initial celebration from Livermore was so, I'm not celebrating against my former club. I had to check he'd never played for QPR. And he hasn't, even though it feels very right. Uh, spot on there. Preston beat Bristol City 2-0. Bristol City, probably the stronger team in the first half. And Freddie Woodman had to make a couple of good saves, albeit Bristol City's finishing has flattered to deceive in the last few weeks. Uh, there are rumours that Scott Twine will be uh, re-diverting himself from Hull to Bristol City and maybe that will help them if Twine's the one taking some of the shots that Jason Knight or Anis Mometi are taking and you have to think that if he can find his rhythm he might offer a bit more of a, uh, a shooting threat. Um, but in the end, despite Max O'Leary making some good saves, it was he who was at fault for Preston's opening goal, uh, rushing out when he had absolutely no reason to do so to my eyes. Uh, Wilkie nipping in and scoring once and then once again from an Emil Reese Jakobsen cross. Good to see him back in a PNE shirt. Those two very much in the midst of the seeded batch 
a frustrating one for Bristol City fans, but for Preston and for Ryan Lowe, always nice to, to get a win in what's been a fraught few months. Uh, Huddersfield won, Plymouth won. Uh, this was Ian Foster's first game in charge of Plymouth, and it looked a little bit different. Uh, it's been a, a lot of a 4-3-3 shape this season under Stephen Schumacher, but this to me looked a bit more 3 4 2 one uh, We saw two new players starting, Ash Phillips at centre-back, who got some pretty uh, positive reviews, and Darko Jabby in midfield on loan from Leeds, who also uh, got some positive reviews. He's absolutely massive and was involved winning the ball back uh, in the build-up to their first goal. But Josh Caroma uh, equalised for Huddersfield, whose owner Kevin Nagel tweeted, NOT GOOD ENOUGH! in all caps, straight after full-time, and then did a, a video explaining uh, his thoughts after the game. It wasn't quite as uh, fire and brimstone. It was a little more understandable when he explained why he tweeted not good enough in all caps, straight after full-time. Uh, one of the things he said in that video was, I do not like passing backwards. It's a cop-out. No. Uh, and lastly, George, Birmingham 2, Swansea. Forward! Sorry, I just kind of got off my chest. Birmingham 2, Swansea 2. Uh, always nice when two new managers have their first league game against each other. Yeah. Tony Mowbray 2, Luke Williams 2. And Kay on the squad pointing out that Luke Williams made a name for himself a couple of months ago with a viral clip talking about short corners. Swansea scored a good old-fashioned cross-it-in thumper yeah. header in. But that's because they're not fit enough yet that he wants to do what he was saying where they've got to always be going the whole time. Stick it in the mixer. Yeah, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't a very... I messaged you in the morning of the game being like, Mowbray versus Williams. Is this going to look like Tony Mowbray versus Luke Williams teams? Because if it does, it's going to be fun. And even though there were four goals in the game, it didn't really, I wouldn't say. Um, yeah, I mean, Swansea and I think uh, Birmingham more of the ball. Swansea not playing the total football we expect to see from Luke. Yeah, which might be a good thing because as we kind of mentioned when he was appointed, it doesn't really feel like he's the perfect mid-season appointment given the extreme style that he requires from his team and players. Yeah, excited to see Josh Tymon get about 10 assists from now to the end of the season, playing in a left wing-back role. Um, Jody Jones has 16 in League Two. That was who uh, Luke Williams left behind. Uh, Tymon got two in this game and does have great delivery on the left side, uh, even if his sort of 1v1 dribbling ability probably isn't quite as strong as Jody Jones, relative to the level. And Sam Parker played in that attacking right wing-back role. Uh, Sam Parker, youngster that's uh, flown into the first team in the last few weeks and, and looks absolutely at home and has had some really good moments. Only 17 years old, but he's quick. Quick. In League One, there were only nine completed matches. Derby are playing Burton Monday night and partly because of the Reading-Port Vale game being abandoned as discussed at the top of the show. But also, tragically, Bolton and Cheltenham's game was also abandoned, uh, this one due to a medical emergency that happened in the first half. Uh, really, sadly, Bolton confirmed on Sunday that the supporter that was taken ill did pass away. A lifelong fan, Ian Perslow, suffered a suspected cardiac arrest during the first half of the game. This is from the Bolton website. Um, he was treated by medical staff and paramedics at the stadium before being taken to hospital where he tragically died. The thoughts of everyone connected to Bolton Wanderers are with Ian's family and loved ones at this incredibly sad time. Uh, we would also like to extend our love and support to Mr. Perslow's family uh, and all those at the game on Saturday who experienced such a tragic event. In terms of the teams that some are calling the big four in League One, uh, we saw Portsmouth and we saw Peterborough. Pompey losing 3-0 at home to Leighton Orient 
and Peterborough winning 2-1 at Charlton. Which one of those do you want to start with? I'll take the Charlton-Posh game, um, which was a very interesting game for, for loads of reasons. You've got Charlton, who are recruiting heavily again, as we saw them do in the summer. I've uh, made some pretty impressive signings, I would say. Um, Connor Coventry, definitely one of those in central midfield, I think, is one of the better... I mean, he's just one of those players at League One level who can do both. You know, he's very competitive off the ball. He gets across around the pitch while he breaks down play, but he's also quality on it. And there aren't very many players at this level who can do that. So that's a good signing. Fiorini, a good signing as well. Um, Gillespie, decent signing in from, from Argyle. It feels like they've strengthened in a few positions there. But we know the fan base, not happy at all with... Um, the performances on the pitch, the finger being pointed at Michael Appleton for the most part, um, and hosting the informed team in the league and a team who I think, are, are, I mean, they're, if they're not title favourites now, it's not going to be long given the, the form of those around them, um, you know, isn't the ideal game to, to come into. Um, so for... Um, Third favourite still with the Betfair Sportsman, Peterborough. Interesting. Bolton, then Just, Jarby, then Peterborough. Just, yeah. Um, so it's... Yeah, it was a difficult game for them to come into and they were terrible in the first half. They didn't have a shot, um, which is, is not a particularly good position to be in. Um, they were 1-0 down, a really nice goal from Ephraim Mason-Clark. Uh, but the second half was a, a very different story. They made a couple of changes at half-time, uh, moved Tyreek Backinson further forward. Uh, Coventry came on and they looked way better, like way better. They took the game to, to Posh in a way we haven't seen many do. They missed a couple of big chances. May scored to make it 1-0. Uh, before Mason Clark uh, won the game to make it uh, and and made it 2-1. So second half was very end-to-end. I think Posh came out on top in what was a, a tough second half. Um, and as I say, I think they're at the moment taking their claim to be maybe the best team in the league. Um, for Charlton, they just need results fast. Uh, I think for the sake of basically everyone, like I, I personally don't get the impression, the pressure that Appleton's being put under uh, by the fan base is necessarily the pressure being put under in the club like I, I just doesn't really feel like they're a club are imminently about to make a change I think they they made an appointment of someone before a transfer window is a long-term appointment I don't see um, anything changing necessarily as of now because I think the feeling probably is that the squad wasn't good enough and having been decimated by injuries um, especially with May recently and Lieber and more long-term being out um, it was difficult to, to do so Blackett Taylor left out of the squad as well um, still rumours about his immediate future uh, Derby seemingly um, still being linked to him but um, yeah a big win for Posh and for Charlton just got to walk the walk soon because it's getting fairly you know the the, the disparity I think between where the fans are and where the club are I think the, you know the, they need results in order to get everybody on side if they're moving in the right direction I, I do definitely think that the signings that, that they are making should go a long way to, to helping that Connor Coventry George Dobson Tyreek Backinson Terry Taylor Louis Fiorini, Panuche Kamara, Conor McGrandles, Louis Watson, Karoy Anderson, Scott Fraser. That's their central midfield depth chart. Some of them are some of them are injured. TBF, but pretty remarkable. And Portsmouth really could have done without a 3-0 defeat to Leighton Orient, but I would like to celebrate an excellent away display for Leighton Orient. Their best result of the season. In fact, the only current top half team that Leighton Orient have beaten in League One this season. Pretty remarkable given that they are 10th in the league table. It's the first time they've beaten uh, any of the teams in the top half. Uh, they were brilliant. They were clinical. 
it reminded me a little bit of the fact that Pompey beat them 4-0 in the reverse fixture. And that was one of those games where Orient fans weren't very happy with the start of their season and then a team rocked up and played well and also took all of their chances that day. I think they had four shots on target and they scored four goals. This felt like a nice sort of uh, bit of payback for Orient because they've arrived at Portsmouth, whose fans are not particularly happy with their recent form, and Orient were really on it and took their chances. Um, really nice combination from Max Sanders and Shaq Ford for the first goal, and then two corners, good, two good deliveries from Theo Archibald, uh, and goals scored by Brown, and then Dan Ajay, who had the funniest moment in League One on Saturday, uh, scoring in front of the Fratton end and doing the Benjani celebration in front of the Portsmouth fans, who, in fairness, many of the ones I saw on social after the game, took it uh, in pretty good spirits. Um, Shaq Ford, Archibald, Ajay, looking quite a dangerous, fluid front three for Orient. Uh, you can certainly see how they'd be quite a dangerous counter-attacking force with those teams and with Sanders and El Miz um, sort of leading the charge from the centre of the park. Uh, really, really good afternoon for Orient. What a, what a day that would have been for the fans in the away end. With Portsmouth, what is there to say that we haven't said already? Basically, it's a team that's suffered from some really, really untimely and key injuries, uh, whose replacements aren't as good as the players that they've come in for, and who, even with the excellent players that they had, the likes of Poole and Robertson, were just running a little bit hot um, as a team and probably we're always going to suffer a little bit of reversion if the general balance of their games carried on. Um, I don't know to what extent they have got significantly worse, to be honest with you. Uh, and I don't necessarily think this has to be the beginning of the end for Portsmouth. But, of course, the emotional aspect of having had the most amazing first, what, 20-odd games of the season, and now that feeling of slipping and sliding, you know, it does cause for lots of alarm, lots of nerves, lots of tension, uh, and it'll be tough for John Moussinho in his first managerial role, uh, but I do think he's a strong enough character to kind of stay on top of things and, you know, not kind of lose his way. So, um, big January for them in terms of the transfer window, uh, and not a good day on Saturday. Uh, Carlisle lost 3-1 at home to Oxford, whose striker Mark Harris took some chances. Spark plug. I note that he was a couple of ticks under his expected goals number for the season, and these two take him about level, uh, which is nice. So, good win for Yellows. I'd like to know a bit more about Tyler Goodrum. We haven't spoken about him for a, a few months on this pod, but he scores good goals, doesn't he? It's a funny thing with him where he's... Um, <laughs> he has... Last season, he was a, a ball of promise and like so buzzy when he came into games, like diminutive, really aggressive presser, so good on the ball. And in this season, it feels like he's, his output has massively gone up in terms of his goal threat, his ability... He, he scores a lot of goals. He picks up the ball on the left-hand side, cuts onto his right foot, as he did against Carlisle, and fires into the far corner, and he's very good at that. It feels like he's in and out of games a bit more, where he's a less of a constant threat. Less of a constant threat. And I'd almost be have been a little bit disappointed by him generally this season, but that doesn't change the fact that the goals that he's scoring. And I think he's a massive talent. He's just signed a new long-term contract at the club, come, having come through the academy. Like I, I love him, but I kind of wish he could marry last season's I just wish he could marry. Threat. He could just settle down <laughs> and get married. I'm sure he's got no chance of that. Um, yeah, I, I think he's someone who, if he could if he could basically marry last season's threat and this season's output, uh, he'd be nine unplayable. It was a, a, a and for, for Harris, a, a fun quirk that he has only scored goals when the transfer window has been open, which I quite like. Um, so from the end of August to the beginning of January, he scored no goals. 
New Year's Day, bang, scores again and gets a brace at Carlisle. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny, the kind of narrative around Oxford, uh, sorry, around Harris amongst Oxford fans is that he's, he's really wasteful, but I just don't really think that's necessarily the case. He's missed a couple of good chances, most strikers do. He's now overperforming his XG this season. Um, a well-taken flick for the first off the bar. And the second is the kind of chance he's quite often messed up before getting to a shot. We kind of rounded the keeper, but it kind of <laughs> chipped over the, 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 the keeper's really legs. Harsh, but my takeaway from that goal was that's one of the most uncomfortable I've ever seen someone actually scoring a one Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but I thought the finish itself was was good. Like yeah. having having messed up the actual act of going around the keeper, he got a bit lucky and then he was able to, rather than swiping at it, he turned and he... And he Planted the ball in the top right hand corner. So, yeah, delighted for him. Oxford need more players. Tyler Bury comes in uh, to play off the left, which I think is a, a, a decent signing. And then uh, Jamie Let's hope he doesn't block the pathway of talented 20-year-old academy graduates. I think, eh? I think Tyler Goodrum needs to be needs to be managed his minutes. Just going back else. to him, because yeah. it's rare that we get to do this sort of live, but I think it's really interesting based on your perception of Goodrum this season versus Goodrum last season. He's played about 100 minutes less this season than last season, which means it's quite a good time to do a statistical yeah. comparison, see if it stacks up with the eye test. Uh, so uh, he's scoring more goals per 90, 0.36 yeah. versus 0.2. Uh, but his XG is exactly the same per 90. Okay. So just some good execution. His XG per shot is a lot is a fair bit higher this season. Right. So he seems to be taking fewer of the... Better shots. Yeah, some better shots. But he's taking slightly fewer shots, so... Same XG per 90. How's that stacks up? Well, he takes slightly fewer shots, but he's taking them from better positions. That's quite an interesting development. It could be a, a coaching thing. Manning might have... It could have been an instruction from Manning or Buckingham. It could just be some development in his own mind. Slightly fewer touches in the box per 90. Uh, so he's not quite... Interesting. Getting into better positions, but not touching as often in those areas. Slightly fewer key passes. His, his expected assist number is about the same. Uh, and he's... Dribbling's a little bit down as well, um, but he's someone you've always said who offers a lot of energy off the ball as well. Really interesting uh, young prospect in League One. Uh, as for Carlisle, I saw quite a few Carlisle fans going down the, well, that's us down vibe. Uh, all the good vibes based on four early January signings seems to have evaporated here after this home defeat. Betfair's odds suggest an 88% probability of Carlisle being relegated. I think we'd say it's too early to, to say that. It's too early to lose hope. Um, but there is an interesting part of this, which is Paul Simpson, the Messiah, getting them up from League One, having with there having been no expectation of that. There seems to be a real internal debate amongst the, the fan base, almost 50-50 split. Do you stick with Simpson, go down with Simpson because he's the Messiah? Or do you change just in order to roll the dice and see if you can uh, see if you can ferment just a bit of luck or a bit of change? I'd like to see him go down. With his ship, I was a roller coaster. I thought you were going to say, "I'd like to see him go," and then he said, "Down." Um, well, yeah. I don't want to see them go down. No, but no. If they do, I want him to go down with them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think they. Who'd be best place to take them back up? Paul Simpson. I think they will make a better fist of staying up than it looks at the moment. I didn't think they were too poor on Saturday. I think they are quite clearly going to be recruiting at a very different level to. Fleetwood to Cheltenham to Reading to Exeter to Shrewsbury um, to Burton like it seems like from early signs like they the new ownership group have enough money to go and recruit at a fair level for League One um, and if that's the case then they're currently six points off off safety as it stands right now which which isn't very much it's just a couple of wins no I just yeah I, I just don't think I, I think they're going to be better in the second half season than the first I think Simpson is quite clearly someone who can get quite a good tune out of 
good squads. Mm. I think for the first half of the season, they didn't really have a good squad. So let's see how they go. I like it. Uh, Barnsley beat Bristol Rovers 2-1. Uh, strong performance from Barnsley in the first half. They were 1-0 up through Devante Cole. Bristol Rovers did come on pretty strong in the second and Chris Martin scored a fantastic old school number nine thumping header with a great bit of movement. Good cross, got in front of his man, headed it into the top corner. Um, but Barnsley's winning goal was full of quality as well. Really nice play through the midfield into Adam Phillips and he showed a nice bit of composure and, and vision to set up Corey O'Keefe to slide it into the corner. Um, quite damaging for Bristol Rovers just in the simple sense that Barnsley, one of the teams that they need to chase down for an unlikely playoff run. And they have to be targeting that uh, after a, a positive start under Matt Taylor. Losing, therefore, to Barnsley is, is, is quite hurtful for that goal. But as El Arbitro noted in Weekend Notes on NTT20.com, five of their next six games are at home, Rovers, including opportunities to cut the gap to Oxford. Uh, they're playing Blackpool as well, who have really poor away records. So... I'm not saying it's season over, even though I did see a couple of Rovers fans saying that as well. Uh, as for Barnsley, XG numbers can be quite boring to hear about, I think, in particular when your team is doing well and Barnsley are in great form. But it is very, very notable the extent to which Barnsley are overperforming their XG numbers. Uh, I'm not going to read out the numbers, but uh, suffice to say that both on the attacking end and defensively, Barnsley have been massively, massively overperforming their expected goals, uh, both for and against. Now, it doesn't mean that's going to change straight away. It doesn't mean that they're suddenly it's all going to come home to roost. It could continue. But they certainly have great players, and there's probably something to be said that the way Neil Collins coaches them, they seem comfortable in helter skelter back and forth games, um, managing those those sort of footballing circumstances. They seem good at that, but it is also volatile, and I think that could lead to some volatile results. Stevenage beat Shrews one nil. Jamie Reed running onto a lovely Jake Forster-Kasky through ball and finishing with a plumb. That was a real finishing with a plumb finish. Yeah. Shrew's playing all the centre-backs here. Just like about four or five centre-backs, about four wing-backs in the team. Uh, I can see why they might set up like that against the Stevenage side who do like an, an aerial threat. But it just continued their theme of being completely useless going forward, not offering any goal threat of themselves and not actually being that good at keeping clean sheets. Losing again, the doom and gloom, the Shrews fan base. You're just yeah. sitting there signing. Well, it's great for a two-man pod. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I just. Uh, I told you so. I, no, no. I'm just. I'm kind of <laughs> bored of talking about Shrewsbury's approach to games, which is creating environments where there aren't very many goals, but then when you yourself can't really score very often, I, I just. I don't think this is the best means for them to try and stay up personally. Um, and I think they've, they've, as we've spoken about before, ridden their luck a lot in terms of, uh, you know, hoping that in games like this one on Saturday, where there aren't very many chances created, but they often create worse ones in the opposition, but win games 1-0, I just don't think it's going to continue. And uh, I, I fear for them. For Stevenage, this is kind of, I know they left it late, but they're a team who just don't concede many chances against anybody, to be honest. So um, I'm sure they always believe they'll be able to get the, the chance to score. Reed. Continues his fine form, and, and you know they are rock solid. I think in terms of being uh, one of the better sides in League One. Now Blackpool's two 0 win against Exeter didn't get them any closer to the top six because so many of the teams above them 
won, but certainly didn't hurt them, um, particularly the growing in confidence of young Albie Morgan playing in the central midfield role, uh, smashing home a square ball from Karamoko Dembele for a sumptuous opener, uh, and then a little half volley through some bodies for the 2-0 goal as well. Very comfy victory with Jordan Rhodes missing a pen as well. So George, you might be bored of talking about Shrewsbury and various other things that we've touched on quite a lot this season, uh, but Cambridge United are a bit new and a bit different under Neil Harris, particularly their new striker, Lyle Taylor. Golden and assists. He had a big old impact in their 2-1 win against Fleetwood. Yeah, on the face of it, I, I, I didn't and, and don't really like this move um, just because when you think of Neil Harris and the strikers that he's used most effectively, I mean, we think of Neil Harris as a player firstly, but you think of Lee Gregory, you think of Steve Morrison, you think of the fact that he probably didn't have what he needed uh, up front um, for, for Gillingham for the most part. Uh, and you see what he did with Gasana Havni for the first four or five games of the season. You know, I, I think Harris is definitely effective, but I think he, d- he needs his strikers to be fairly physical and able to win the ball in the air and to, to hold the ball up well. I think Lyle Taylor in himself, at his best, was a, a very, very good striker in terms of being clever on the ball, of being very good at finding space in the box from which to score, as we saw from, from his first goal here. But they don't seem like a, a great stylistic fit to me. Um but what do I know? I mean, I still think it may not be the best, but he was... Good start. He, he was, looked sharp. Well, he was the difference he here. A lot sharper than I thought he would. So that was the other part, is that you're also signing a player who hasn't played for a long time, who's just had a loan spell in League One and was basically sent packing without many Wickham fans being concerned at all, despite their plight that he'd gone. He was great here. I mean, he's, he's obviously someone, and when he, when he spoke to you on the podcast, he, he basically said, I would like to prove people wrong. And I think probably having a bad loan spell... It's probably just the kind of um, inspiration he needed to go and put in a display like this. A brilliant ball for the for the second um, after, I think it was Lancaster, I think had just missed one of the easier chances you're likely to see um, at the back post, but it didn't matter. Um, a pretty end-to-end game. I feel like Fleetwood have come out second best on a lot of these very end-to-end games where they can create a lot of chances and, and struggle to put them away, um, which might mean there's some respite for them around the corner, but at the moment it looks pretty desperate. Yeah, Lyle Taylor, obviously the, the big... News for Cambridge United, but the real connoisseurs want to talk about Brandon Njoku, uh, who's a youngster that came off the bench and made a big impact as well. Um, Neil Harris said afterwards, I gave him a special mention to the boys and he got an ovation. His energy, enthusiasm and ability to stretch the game was really important to us. Uh, Njoku's a young attacking player, looks very energetic, enthusiastic and someone who can stretch the game, as Neil Harris said. Uh, I know that he was on loan at St Ives uh, in the first part of the season and by all accounts was miles too good for that level, which I think is maybe the seventh tier. Uh, Now he's back at Cambridge um, having an impact on the first team. Maybe he'll go back out on loan towards the end of the window or maybe he'll make some of those minutes his own. A couple of draws, Northampton one, Wigan one. I'll just mention some new faces here. Luke Chambers, young Liverpool left back, straight in at Wigan. They already had a couple of left backs on the books, but they wanted Chambers. Uh, He's Comes with pretty strong reviews. Uh, Derek McInnes, his former manager on loan at uh, Kilmarnock, said he's the, his best loan he's ever worked with. So I'm feeling quite excited about that one. And for Lincoln, in their one-all draw against Wickham, which came in injury time, uh, Freddie Draper and Joe Taylor started up top. A real sort of League Two first half of the season dream team pairing. Uh, one that I think, uh, albeit they're both pretty young and will probably need to develop a bit of a relationship, a partnership, I think the the combination of their skills and profiles could be very interesting and, and make Lincoln a much more interesting attacking team. 
And in League Two, can't imagine there's ever been two five alls in a season in League Two. But here we are, only just after, over half the way through. Grimsby, five. Notts County, five. Absolute bedlam throughout this game. I mean, <laughs> this is just everything that I love about the EFL, everything I love about League Two this season. I'm going to start at the end where Harry Wood had one of my favourite ever debuts of an EFL player yeah. on loan from Hull. Just had a really good loan at Shelbourne in Ireland. Came on, and I think it was his first touch because he came on in injury time. Uh, ball sent forward, bounces around, square ball, bouncing ball, just catches it so sweetly, flies into the top corner, five all, Bedlam at Grimsby, and he runs to the touchline and he does the worm. Well, he doesn't go straight into the worm, does he? Doesn't he? He slips. He slips. He slips, his foot just completely goes. Then he tries the worm. It's not a particularly good worm oh, as they oh, go. It's better than any worm I've ever done. Yeah, me too. But if I judged all footballers based on my own ability, this would be a ridiculous podcast. I think everything they did was amazing. Um, yes. But also, I also like how his, his players are about to jump on him to celebrate. And then they've just got respect for the worm. And as soon as he starts doing the worm, they all, with their arms out, yeah. always been like, guys, get back. He's, yeah. he's doing the worm. Protect the worm. Yeah. Um, this is amazing. Would you still love me if I was a worm? <laughs> I wouldn't even know you. <laughs> um, I mean, what else? Jody Jones got four assists in this game. Jody Jones has 16 assists for the season, which is five more than anyone else in the EFL. Macaulay Langstaff scored his 20th league goal of the season. That's four more goals than anyone else in the EFL. Uh, Abu Isa had one of the games that he has about once a month. He, he might be the number one player in League Two for the cliche, on his day, <laughs> he is unplayable. Uh, we had Harry Woods, great moment, and the Wurram. Uh, this was this was Jim O'Brien's first ever match in the dugout as caretaker of not. Game in. Give him that job full time now because I need more of this. Ah, oh, so Gr much. Grimsby fun. have conceded eleven goals in the last two home games. <laughs> well, the, I'd the, like to know if that's a record. The serious aspect of this is like both sets of fans, the the ones who are glass half empty, are going like, how do we expect to do anything if we can't keep the ball out of our net? Which yeah, but also enjoy it, man. Yeah, love it. <laughs> It's so fun. It is amazing how bad knots are at defending. Yes, I mean both. I would say as well. Like you see the way the yeah, but knots aren't in the top seven. Uh, sorry, Grimsby aren't the top seven. Team. And it also does help when you've got Jody Jones playing. I, I honestly watching Jody Jones doing Jody Jones things as a fan of a team who had him all of last season and couldn't create anything in open play. Yeah, is one of the weirdest things to do. Frustrating. Yes, uh, amazing. Stockport beat th Walsall three one. Uh, still top of the league, Stockport, but quite a valuable win for them just to settle some nerves. Uh, Akil Wright thrashed them ahead from range early on. And then James Taylor, Douglas James Taylor, a man with three first names, equalised for Walsall, but a Lafay and then a penalty from Madden uh, had Stock Stockport ease to victory in the second half. Uh, the most home points in the EFL, Wrexham. They beat Wimbledon, three more home points for Wrexham. I think it's eight. Home league wins in a row now. Uh, it was a James McLean corner and a Stephen Fletcher header. Is this A, 2012-13 Sunderland, B, 2020-21 Stoke, or C, 2023-24 Wrexham? Wrexham. It is actually, but it could have been the other so two. So Ryan, if you're listening, pick up the phone. You've got my number. 
Could have been the other two because that was uh, other scenarios. I got, I got the joke. James McLean. Yeah. Stephen Fletcher. McLean's been really good. In if the last you're, few months. it's a bit unfair. They've got James McLean. If you're Johnny Jackson, and your team is putting a really good performance against one of the title favourites, who are probably the best home team, or arguably the best home team in the league, and most home points in the EFL, mate. There you go. So, yeah. but I think you've got to say arguably because the league table lies, as we as we both know. Um, and you see your team conceding a goal to a Stephen Fletcher completely open back post header, mm. you've got to be pretty angry. Yeah, something went wrong with the set piece defending there, that's for sure. Um, word for Aaron Sasu, playing off the left-hand side for Everson Wimbledon, who looked very lively. Would that be your word? Lively? Lively. Lively. I think that a lot of people focus on Paul Mullen because of the goals and the documentary. Yeah. I don't think he's even in the top three Wrexham players this season. Yeah, I don't I think agree. he's one of their three best players. Yeah. I think Paul Blake's recovering from a punctured lung. Well, he doesn't go now. <laughs> Come on. Um, James McLean, be up there for me. Uh, just whipping in cross after cross after cross after cross after cross after cross. And still just so tenacious out of possession. I really believe he's so... He's got that amazing football aggression that I actually think, like, often just genuinely scares mm. his opposition number. Like, if you, if you, if you know he's herring towards you, you'd be a bit scared, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, Elliot Lee probably, would also be in my top three. I'll think about the other one. Uh, Morecambe drew one with Mansfield. So Mansfield dropping some points here, but I think credit has to go to, to Morecambe for coming yeah. back from 1-0 down. Not only that, all five of Morecambe's loans have been recalled. Some of them, them like basically their most important players, Michael Mellon, Tom Bloxon, Eli King, James Connolly. Uh, not only that, JJ McKeonan injured out for six weeks. So they've basically lost four starters, but they're showing fight. Jed Brannan's like, don't worry about it. We're Morecambe. We fight for everything. And that's what they did here to come from behind against Mansfield and draw 1-1. Really good result for them. And George Crew 2, Swindon 1. Spell the end of Michael Flynn at Swindon. Sacked this morning. What's the end in French? Le fin. Le flan. <laughs> flan is something different. All uh, right. It's, it's a sweet treat. No, I was just trying to use my babble um, learnings. <laughs> oh, well done. Thanks. Uh, Six months free. I forgot what you said. <laughs> Mike Flynn's been sacked he by has. Swindon. Yes. Yeah. Um, what? Seventy-two days after him and Wayne Hatswell were given long-term contracts at mm. the club, doesn't bode. I mean, doesn't reflect that well. But I think when you look at the performances and results, it's kind of hard to take issue with it. Um, it looks like it's kind of a, a decision that's been taken to basically sack them and give the interim role to Gavin Gunning looking at the Swindon press release until the end of the season. So it looks like they've basically taken a view that this season's kind of gone. Um, Jamie Russell, who's the head of football, has been tasked alongside uh, Gunning himself uh, and, and Clem Morfuni um, to oversee football operations and look for a new look coaching team. So, yeah, I mean, after a really promising start, things have unravelled fast uh, for Swindon Town and... Um, doesn't know there'll be any news coming out of there as to who the new management team is, but uh, under Morfuni, after that incredible first season with Ben Garner in charge and Ben Chorley in charge of football operations, it's been kind of misstep after misstep, really. I think it's a terrible job to take for a prospective manager. I think they've got a really right, bad. I think yeah. they've got a bad squad. They've conceded the second most goals in the league, and I'm fairly confident that Flynn isn't like a bad manager when it comes to setting up a defence. I think they have a really poor squad profile when it comes to digging in and defending and doing what's necessary to keep the ball out of their goal. Um, and famously, 
They lost Dan Kemp and Jake Young. Who's playing in those two roles at the moment? Uh, Dawson DeVoy on loan from MK Dons. Paul Glatzel, who they signed a couple of days before this game. Glatzel is one of those players who had a quite an eye-catching youth career with Liverpool. He had a fairly eye-catching spell on loan at Tranmere. Has also had some horrendous time with injury over the last couple of years. And it would be asking a lot of him to, to provide even half of what Kemp or Young was providing. Same can be said for Devoy, who really needs to get his confidence back. He's just never quite clicked at MK. Uh, always talked of as quite a technical midfielder, but you know, playing in that sort of 10 role behind Charlie Austin, you really think that he's going to be impacting games in the final third like those two. I'm highly, highly concerned. Uh, Hutton, the right back, who I think has the most open play key passes in the division this season. He wasn't in the squad either with rumours of his departure. Um, you know, they are, what, 15 points above the relegation zone? Pretty good, right? Yeah. Probably will be all right. But there's so much time between now and the end of the season. There's so much worse it can still get. And, poof. Hmm. A good win for Crew though, by the way. Three in, a three in a row for them. They're now six points, their cushion, to eighth place. Their playoff cushion. Mm. What a comfy cushion that is. Uh, Luke Offord being com compared to N'Golo Kante, among others, wow. in his new defensive midfield role. Uh, but this one was about some really sharp strikes from their attacking players. Elliot Nevitt, swivel volley class, and Courtney Baker-Richardson with a back heel. There's actually two incredibly high-quality goals at this level. Uh, George Troidini is famously manager of Forest Green Rovers. Uh, they lost 2-0 to Harrogate. Oh. I'd like to mention Harrogate first. Yes. Five wins in seven. Abraham Odo. They keep on rolling. Anyone you in the summer? Uh-huh. NTT20.com told me all about this signing. Uh, he took our point from last week about maybe needing a bit more in terms of goal contributions. Just grabbed another two here. Assist and a goal. Red card for Alex Gorin. <sighs> he was so sad. Yeah, long -term. I'm so sorry for him. I haven't heard that name for a while. Um, sendings off continuing to trip up Forest Green, I think it's fair to say. The most notable having been that one against Newport a couple of weeks ago. When, when you've got ahead. a disciplinary issue, signing Alex Gorin is is an interesting one because he's his best trait is his ability to foul. Yes. But normally he's good at fouling. Like he knows when to foul. This time he, he didn't know when to foul. Maybe a bit rusty, rusty. Hasn't played much football. He was slow to the ball. Second yellow. Yeah. Um, but it's Troy Deeney's post-match quotes yeah. have been catching the attention of the wider footballing media. Yes. Um, uh, you know, if you haven't listened to them um, there's a kind of a couple doing the rounds. One is him just generally saying the players aren't good enough, and then one is him specifically talking about um, Fankati Darbo, basically being like, "This kid had a kick to get in the Premier League last season. Now he should be playing. Now he struggled to get play non-league." Um, which in itself seems to me like it, it's stopping short of the Joey Barton bullying of Luke Thomas a couple of months ago. Um, but it's still a pretty nasty way to talk about someone in the public. Again, like we always say it with manager interviews, is you have to kind of remember that, that managers have their way of motivating players. And maybe for whatever reason, Dean, you know, this is giving him maybe unnecessary benefit of the doubt, but maybe he believes that the best way to motivate this group of players is to uh, be openly pretty rude about them. I don't like it myself. It's not how I would want my manager of my club to behave uh, in the press and in the media. It also doesn't, it's not a great look when he is sounding off about his team at 5.30 on a Saturday and then he's in a Sky Sports studio on the sofa on a Sunday with a game a couple of days later. Like I, I personally don't really think you're in a great position to talk to players about their levels if, if that is 
kind of the, the standards that are being set. Um, I personally had seen a fair bit in their games 11 v 11 to for me to think that they looked okay under Dini. This was the opposite. They were awful. Um, you know, when it was 11 v 11 and then afterwards too against Harrogate side who are absolutely flying. You could hear them saying, we are going up uh, when the second goal went in. So it's difficult times now and it's it's just not a good look for Forest Green when they are staring relegation in the face and you've got a manager who has no managerial experience who is still conducting media work and basically going viral for, for slagging off uh, his players. So how does this end? Um, I think it might end quite soon. Carl Robinson is the manager of Salford City. Uh, he was in the stands in this, his second game in charge at Crawley as he got sent off in his opening game uh, last week. But he would have watched one of the most eye-catching performances of the week in the EFL just because of how surprising it was and how much they seem to be uncorked going forward in particular. 35 shots for Salford. Corey Adai in the Crawley goal made 11 saves. Could have been a much more comfortable win. In the end, they needed quite a bad mistake from Crawley defender in order to get their goal from Kelly Namai with 10 minutes left. Uh, and they had a... Sorry, little... are you saying Nemain, Namai and May all scored? Nemain, Namai and May. Did Ryan Mamey score? I wish Ryan <laughs> Mamey had scored. Um, but this is quite impressive, isn't it? This was, in my eyes, the best performance of the day. And wow. I promise I'm not just saying that because their manager used to manage Oxford. Um, well, just in terms of pre-match expectation, like Crawley were odds on to win this game. Hmm. So from pre-match expectation to what actually happened on the pitch, like this was incredible. Like from from the first, I sent you a shot map after like ten minutes, being mm. like, "What is going on here?" Like from the first whistle, you sent Salford, me so many shot maps on a Salford, <laughs> Salford were um, yeah. When I'm not at a game, uh, Salford were just all over Crawley and were able to to fashion loads of opportunities. And when just the thing is, when you look through their team, like you look through the eleven. And you're like, yeah, obviously, like obviously they're good. Like, how have they been so poor for the majority of the season? Um, I like that we're seeing McElhaney playing just off off Smith. Um, Garbutt on the left is a player that obviously Robinson's worked with before at Oxford and tried to re-sign again uh, before going to Salford. I think in the uh, last summer, not the summer, just gone the summer before that. Um, and they, they should be set up to play this kind of attacking football. They play Colchester on Friday night at home, and you have to think that is. A huge game where especially off the back of this win it feels like if Salford can put another performance in at that level um, then maybe the, it currently looks like a four to go into the, the bottom two places Doncaster kind of doing their best to, to force their way back into that reckoning um, but yeah if, if Salford maintain that, that level of performance we saw on, on Saturday then they'll get clear of it very soon and I want to just mention Steve Morrison being the new manager of Sutton. I think it would have been mentioned last week, but it wasn't really the pod for any in-depth thoughts. Uh, his first game was a two-all draw against Barrow, fourth place Barrow. So really impressive result that. Um, I'd written in the week a recruitment piece, uh, what the relegation candidates need in order to strengthen. For Sutton, I said central midfielder who scores goals because I didn't think the group of central midfielders that they had were offering enough goal threat. Harry Butiman took that personally, scored a brace for Steve Morrison in his first league game in charge of Sutton. I think this is a good appointment. I was obviously sad that Matt Gray was sacked, but uh, given that he he was, given that they were looking for a replacement, I don't hate this at all. Uh, Morrison comes from Hornchurch. It might seem like quite a bizarre situation that he ended up at Hornchurch in the Isthmian League. That's the uh, seventh tier. 
uh, after being with Cardiff most recently in the championship. But uh, it's worth knowing that in that league, Hornchurch have the biggest budget. Um, they're a very ambitious, rich uh, Isthmian league club. And he had them top of the league. And I, I guess the, the case would have always been for him to keep his eye in, keep working as a manager of a football club and be open for opportunities. And he certainly was here uh, moving on to Sutton after just uh, what half a season with Hornchurch. But I felt he was quite harshly ch- uh, sacked by Cardiff at the start of last season. They weren't a great team. Uh, they were okay defensively. They were pretty poor going forward. That's kind of been Cardiff's whole personality in the last few years. They were 18th at the time he was sacked. I didn't think that was uh, underperforming necessarily. Uh, the squad had been revamped. The, the cost-cutting over the previous few years was um, pretty extreme. So, you know, there were a few things I thought were really impressive, in fact. His underlying numbers were good. They had the best open play defence in the whole division under Morrison, uh, Cardiff City. So I think for Sutton, it's a really good appointment. Uh, they obviously have a, a lot of work to do to um, to challenge for survival, to reach survival, but I don't hate it. Problem is, George, Carl Robinson at Salford, yeah. bit of a coup. Danny Cowley at Colchester United, coup of all coups, maybe. C- cuckoo. <laughs> Cuckoo land. Uh, and and helped, but the, but this helped is, by geography. But this is what we this is what we said the other day is is this whole idea of like wow they've appointed Carl Robinson can't get relegated yeah they appointed Danny Cowley mm. they can't get relegated Steve Morrison is that not true wow well no <laughs> no two teams gonna go down All right but if they'd appointed Neil Warnock oh <laughs> then I think only one uh, Colchester under Cowley got a one all draw with Bradford uh, which is a pretty uh, good result you have to say MK. Late winner against Tramia Rovers. Yes. Mike, Mike will I am, son. <laughs> yes, you will, son. Yeah, a, a really good way for them to bounce back from what was a humbling and disappointing 3-0 defeat at, at Doncaster last time out that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and they were good for it as well. They were really impressive uh, in the game. Um, played very well. Uh, Dan Kemp slotted in nicely into the side. Had, I think, six shots. Um, I think he's going to be a, a massive threat for them going forward for the rest of the campaign. Um, they, you know, the the, the, skull, the, the goal that Tramir scored came with a fairly large slice of fortune, um, but it was the 97th minute that Ellis Harrison, after a bit of a goal-mass scramble, was able to hammer, hammer home, having previously just missed a, a one-on-one. So for Tramir, I mean, it was always going to be hard for them to maintain their, their levels after those um, five wins and six and four wins in a row, back-to-back defeats, but those defeats have come against a, two sides in Barron and MK Don, so I think at worst we'll finish in the top seven. Um, away trip to Swindon and Grimsby, and then a, a home uh, game against Crew come next. They've got a, you know, they're not easy games, but they've got a, a run of of more favourable fixtures coming up. So we'll see if, uh, if they can return to those uh, sparkling days of December. No easy games at this level, apart from arguably Sutton at home because they've lost nine of twelve. Yeah, and only won one of their away games. Yeah, uh, Accrington lost two one to Jills. This is a big one for Jills really because after beating Colchester and Sutton one nil. There were some there were some positive murmurings, and I just felt, let's see you beat someone that isn't in the bottom four of the league table. And they said, yes, okay. How about Accrington? How about Accrington? And we're going to concede first. Yeah, we'll come from behind, shall we? Yeah. Just make it even harder for ourselves. Yeah, fair enough. Good stuff. Um, You've been clemballed. The first time this season that they've scored more than once away from home. That is clemball. Um, both teams scored a set piece goal. And Jills is winner from Macaulay Bond after quality play from Connor Mahoney down the right. It does just sum up. They've got some. They've got some well. They must have some well-paid players. They've got some good players, Mahoney and Bond. Uh, and Newport beat Donny one 0 Excellent Lewis Payne cross for Seb Palmer Holden. 
to score the winner in injury time. Uh, six points now between these two teams. Newport, I think, can feel just quite comfortable now. 15 points clear of the drop. I honestly thought this season was going to be really tough for Newport. They've got a, a very small budget for this level. They've got, to my eyes, a pretty poor squad, particularly in terms of depth. So credit to Graham Coughlin. He is tough on his players. He can be, to my eyes, overcritical when they lose. But you cannot argue with the results. And I think in a season where they're, they're making a major change off the field, moving from fan ownership to the ownership of Hugh Jenkins, it would have been a bit messy for that to take place in the middle of a relegation battle. And now they can plan ahead without it being undermined by the sort of panic or fear of, of relegation. A great win here away at Donny, who are in terrible nick. Thanks very much for listening to this NTT20 Monday pod. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, loads to talk about. And it's always a pleasure to do that every single Monday on this feed. Uh, we'll be back again in the second half of the week with a betting show. If you want to support Not The Top 20, there are two great ways of doing it. You can either join the NTT20 squad, uh, which is a community of EFL lovers who talk about all things EFL all day, every day, full of great info and, and opinion on there as well. Uh, some great people on there. Uh, or you can subscribe to NTT20.com. Uh, it's our written content. Uh, we work really hard on it and we think that we're providing the best written EFL content, particularly when it comes to the January transfer window, that you can possibly find. Sign up today, ntt20.com. Cheers. Go well.